This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love to tell your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on air when we get them. And this next story is about Benjamin Franklin. And you're about to, well, learn more about one of his most famous publications. Here's Robbie. You've probably heard of Poor Richard's Almanac. You definitely know the effects of eating an apple a day. But where did it all come from? Here's Benjamin Franklin impersonator, Mitchell Kramer. Well, it really is purely practical. You know, he's got a printing house in Philadelphia, and he's got a rival, Andrew Bradford. It's the early 1730s, so he's had his printing press for a few years. He's printing other people's almanacs. Um, The one that's really specific is Thomas Godfrey, because Thomas Godfrey is an actual friend of his. And he gets into this weird fight with Godfrey, and... It's really a silly fight. Head librarian of the library company, Jim Green. Franklin and Godfrey were close friends, so close that he invited Godfrey and his wife and children to live with him. This was all fine, but Franklin realized he needed a wife. Now, it happened that Mrs. Godfrey had a relative who was looking for a husband, and she decided to act as a matchmaker. She brought them together. The girl's parents approved, and they began to court seriously. But when the parents found out how much money Franklin wanted as a dowry, they withdrew their support. He suspected them of trying to trick him out of paying it by leading him on till he was too engaged to pull back. Franklin got mad, broke off the engagement, and quarreled with the Godfreys who moved out of his house. Even so, Godfrey continued to publish his almanacs with Franklin until, in July of 1732, he published a story in his newspaper that pretended to be fiction, but was really a relation of exactly what had happened with Mrs. Godfrey. It took this thing that had been a private affair and made it completely public. Godfrey was so embarrassed that in the fall, when it came time for another almanac, he took it to a rival printer instead. Andrew Bradford. So he just does it to sort of, well, I, I'm all, I was all set to print an almanac, but I lost the contract, so I'll just write one myself. He does that first one, and he and he, it's not great, um, and he gets it out late. Most of the almanacs come out in November. His do, his first printing doesn't come out until the end of December. He makes a mistake. He transposes two months, so October appears as September, and September is in October. So it's not even that good. But he does something that makes it really popular and it's really clever and it becomes sort of the key to to poor Richard's success to this persona which is the one page preface at the beginning of it in which he introduces this character of poor Richard Franklin impersonator Brian Patrick Mulligan the plain truth of the matter is I am excessive poor and my wife good woman is I tell you excessive proud she cannot bear and had threatened more than once to burn all my books and rattling traps as she calls my instruments if I do not make some profitable use of them for the good of my family. So, one of the appeals of poor Richard and his wife Bridget was the ongoing relationship. People would come back year after year to read about what's going on with poor Richard. 
It was similar to following a soap opera. Because what he does is he says, in the persona of poor Richard, I'm an astrologer. So he's going to use this to make fun. He's going to use this persona of an astrologer, this old, poor, silly astrologer, to make fun of astrology in his almanac. So he says, to prove my worth as an astrologer, I'm going to make a prediction. That prediction was the death of rival almanacker Titan Leeds. And that would have been it. People think it's funny, and it would have just been at the end of it, except the following year, Titan Leeds, the man whose death he has predicted, makes the terrible mistake of engaging in it, of putting in his almanac, I'm not dead. Which is, of course, exactly what Franklin wants. He's created a fake rivalry. And, um, and Titan is, this Titan Leeds has completely fallen for it. And so in his next issue, he says, you know, are you sure you're not dead? Basically. And I mean, I'm pretty sure you're dead. He sort of uses the almanac to create a persona, to start a joke, and to tease his competitors, all in this little one-page preface. And that's what people love, and that's what sort of becomes his almanac's best feature is this little preface that he creates. When Titan Leeds actually dies, he says, well, I was just off. Because eventually Titan Leeds dies. Five years after he's predicted his death, Leeds dies. And they write in the almanac that Leeds, in Leeds' almanac that Leeds has died, but he's provided the printer with enough information to keep printing almanacs for years to come. So Franklin says, oh, well, you see what happened? He died years ago, and they've just been printing the almanacs, just as I said. And then he writes a letter that purports to be from Titan Leeds, written to poor Richard, who, of course, doesn't exist. But poor Richard claims that the letter comes to him in a dream and that he wrote it himself. And, of course... The printer of the Titan Leeds almanac can't do anything about it because Leeds is dead. So he's now actually taking the character of this other almanac who he's been in this little rival, this fake rivalry with, and he's now usurped him and taken him into a character of his own. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of poor Richard's almanac. And when you're talking about poor Richards, you've got to talk about Benjamin Franklin. By the way, we did a terrific hour on the war in Ben Franklin's home, and it was a story about, well, Franklin's separation from his son, and his son, William, was the royal governor of New Jersey and sided with the crown. And, of course, Franklin sided with the patriots. And in the end, the son ended up in prison in solitary in Connecticut in a gulag, a a gowl of, of horrendous nature and ultimately exiled to England, the two never to have reconciled. And when we come back, more American history, poor Richard's almanac, the story here on Our American Stories. Benjamin Franklin's 
Poor Richard's Almanac, the characters he's created, and the aphorisms that we quote even today. Remember, the persona of Poor Richard is the writer, the author, the almanac creator, whereas Franklin is the printer. And so Richard will say things like, after the, it starts selling well, his, his character, his persona of Poor Richard will say, people ask me why I still go by Poor Richard now that my almanac is selling well, and I have to tell you that the fact is my printer gets most of the money, but don't you know, get angry at him. He's a great guy, and he deserves it. But of course, this is poor Richard talking about Franklin. So he's now, this is one of the things people really love is when he starts to get into conversations about himself from a third person point of view. And then he does it in one issue. He goes even further and he writes the preface, not as poor Richard, but as poor Richard's wife, Bridget Saunders. And Bridget Saunders, like many of Franklin's women personas is even more interesting and in many ways more fleshed out as a person than Richard Saunders, than poor Richard. So now, in one preface, this is one of the funniest of the prefaces, he is writing as Bridget Saunders, talking about Richard Saunders, and she mentions something that Richard Saunders said about Franklin. So he's now sort of taking it to a third point of view. It's very clever. It's, it's, again, it's this idea of satire as in we're all in on the joke. And because we're all in on the joke and because it's, it's from an American point of view, it's this common man's point of view as opposed to trying to be haughty and literary, which is what people did then. This idea of the writer as being sort of above it all is very typical. But Franklin's characters are just the everyman. Obviously, by the time the final printing comes along, it's a very different story. The one-page preface has now become a 12-page, really, essay onto, all to its own. In the 18th century idea of essays in which, you know, they would be standalone little books that people would buy. And eventually, that final essay will become his best-selling standalone little book. But in those early days, it's really about... I think he must have had a lot of fun with it. And then, of course, he also happens to be a really good writer. So he's able to take the little aphorisms, the little proverbs, and just make them better. Make them more clever, make them read better. Make You know, when it needs to be a little longer, he'll make it a little longer. When it needs to be really short and brief, he'll make them shorter. No, you know, time is money. That's a great little proverb. Um, And then, of course, when he needs to add a joke, especially rhyming jokes, he'll throw in some rhymes or sing songs. The reason Poor Richard's Almanac is still known today is because of these maxims, Uh, because they're not uh, topical jokes about current affairs. They're timeless and practical maxims, you know such as keep your eyes wide open before marriage, half shut afterwards. And your high school English teacher's favorite. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And he stuck them into the almanac. But he did something else that was even more unusual, which is he put them in and amongst the calendar information. 
the weather predictions or um, all this all this kind of weather data. Um, he scattered the words, the aphorisms among all that and made them just a little bit hard to find. It was a sort of where's Waldo type of thing. So early to bed, early to rise could take up a whole four inch column with the words scattered, a few in this line, none in the next two lines of, of astrological symbols, three words in the next line, so he got it all in. Which means at first you wouldn't even notice the aphorisms, but once you caught on and noticed there was one of them on every calendar page, or two, or three even, it became kind of a game to find them and to read them. But Franklin's proverbs became a joke. You know, people made fun of all the proverbs. They, they teased him for it. Um, it was considered a very low form of literature, but he sees it as, you know, something that, you know, is a sort of relatable to the common man. And yeah, on one hand, he's doing that on purpose to make himself, you know, sell more almanacs. But on the other hand, he really believes it. He can just be sort of positive and, and use these proverbs to allow ordinary people to, um, you know, to maybe improve their life. Because he's very practical in a lot of ways. There's this great quote of his late in life where he says, I know he's so quotable, what is, I have tried in everything I have undertaken to serve the benefit of mankind. And he totally means it. He's completely honest about it. He really wants to make the world a better place. And he actually finds himself with the, the ability to do it. Poor Richard's almanac was getting a buzz. It was this new and interesting, witty thing. In future years, the reputation of the almanac spread, which was fairly unusual. Almanacs were typically printed for a particular latitude, but that didn't seem to stop poor Richards. It was found everywhere. While not the top-selling almanac, it had reach that few could rival. Its legacy spread throughout the colonies and even beyond. Its infamy crossed the Atlantic and found its way to France, making an appearance in the American Revolution. King Louis of France gave a ship to our Navy commander, John Paul Jones, and the ship was called Bonhomme Richard. Following the time of the American Revolution, three other ships have borne the name Bonhomme Richard, or Good Man Richard. I believe in some form or other, I shall always exist. Franklin has been remembered sometimes by ship and sometimes by t-shirt. You know, the, the one that's on every t-shirt, the way they put it on the t-shirt, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. But of course, he never said that. And the original quote is from a letter. He's in France and he's writing in French. And he makes this little joke at the end of the letter. He says, well, I know that God loves us because he created the fruit of the vine. But he's saying it in French, and somehow that quote is... It, you see it on T-shirts all the time, but it's always a misquote. While Franklin initially railed against indulgence, his love for the finer things in life eventually came out. Well, he stops making fun of being fat in the early 
um, proverbs. I mean, specifically talking about the little adages, the little aphorisms. He definitely makes talks a lot about health in the early issues because he was very health conscious. And of course, as he gets older, he becomes much less health conscious and stops making fun of that. The one I really like is, um, in beer there is truth, in wine there is wisdom, and in water there is bacteria. (laughs) I think that's a funny one. Another one that's a favorite of mine is, a countryman between two lawyers is like a fish between two cats. Genius is nothing more than a greater aptitude for patience. Dr. H.W. Brands. But with Franklin, you could always see that he had his tongue in his cheek and he had a wink in his eye. And so when people would read these, they would realize, ah, okay. It was not exactly the Saturday Night Live of that time, but it served some of the same purpose. It was designed to entertain, even as it educated. And what great storytelling about poor Richard's almanac. And my goodness, what wit, what wisdom, and what a mind that Franklin had to create such an entertainment property, self-promoter to the end, and just a sort of quintessential American entrepreneur. And at best, this is what our public intellectuals look like. Very different than the heady European type. Always in the end, bringing it down to earth. And in the end, sort of making fun of himself if not directly, most certainly indirectly. And when we come back, the last installment of the story of poor Richard's Almanac. And again, if you have suggestions about American history, a story you think we should be telling, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We consider our listeners, our moles, our researchers, our, our folks in the field. That's what you are. You're our hands in the field. Send us, again, your suggestions for anything having to do with American history, the side of a story that we should know but don't, whatever it might be, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, the rest of the story of poor Richard's Almanac here on Our American Stories. stories and we're back with the end of Benjamin Franklin's 25-year publication of Poor Richard's Almanac and its legacy. But after 25 years, Franklin decided it was time to call it quits. He was on a ship crossing in the ocean and he had a lot of time on his hands, so he did a very clever thing. He must have brought copies of all 25 almanacs with him and he went through them and copied out all the aphorisms that he thought were most useful as opposed to being just funny or snarky, the way so many of them were. He grouped them all together and arranged them in a speech, which later was called The Way to Wealth. But in its first form, which was in the 1758 almanac, it it had no title at all. It was just the preface. And the preface was signed Richard Saunders. And it starts by saying, 
I have heard that nothing gives an author so great a pleasure as to have his works respectably quoted by other learned authors. And this in itself was funny to people who had been reading poor Richard's prefaces for so long and thought he was sort of a dope. Richard Saunders goes on to say that he was in the market the other day and there was this guy called Father Abraham. So Father Abraham gives this speech in which he strings together various adages of poor Richard. And these are the ones that pertain to how one will succeed. The sort of things that any young man who wants to make a success out of himself, the way Benjamin Franklin made a success out of himself, should follow. Richard says, you can imagine how gratified I was. He quotes, uh, he quotes the whole speech. If you'll have my advice, I'll give it to you, says Father Abraham, for a word to the wise is enough, and many words will not fill a bushel, as poor Richard says. The joke here is Richard is thrilled to have his works, as he's now calling them, being quoted by other learned authors, or rather this old man who is haranguing the crowd in the marketplace. And they just go one after another, as poor Richard says, as poor Richard says, as poor Richard says, like the blows of a hammer after every one of the dozens of aphorisms. And at the end of it, poor Richard says that everyone listened very respectfully and then went home and forgot all about it. So the way to wealth was a kind of recycling of the aphorisms, but it was also putting them to a new purpose. Franklin actually did feel that his aphorisms could benefit people, that some of them, the ones that had some moral weight to them, should be preserved. So he brought the best of them all together and gave them a frame with Father Abraham. The original almanac was, was pretty ephemeral, but it, almost immediately it was republished separately under the title Father Abraham's Speech, and in that form it became a sort of viral bestseller. It was reprinted um, several times in the 1750s and 60s under that title, and then, it, then Franklin sort of took it back and, and revised it, pruning away most of the aphorisms except the ones that, that dealt with industry and frugality. And then he, he reissued it under a new title called The Way to Wealth. And in that form, it became a worldwide bestseller. It was translated into 20 languages and had been published in almost every printing press in Europe and America. So no one reads Poor Richard's Almanac anymore, but The Way to Wealth is still in print. It has been ever since the 1770s. So part of the reputation that Franklin got for being a preachy, penny-pinching nag was because of the popularity of this new way to wealth, which um, in its emphasis on industry and frugality um, was really quite different from the original that began in the Almanac in 1758. Over the years, generation after generation of American school kids would be introduced to Poor Richard through Father Abraham. And if you read Franklin, if you read Poor Richard simply through Father Abraham, you would tend to think that this is a pretty serious guy. And in fact, certain Americans who would become famous took issue with the idea that they had to read Father Abraham and the Maxims of Poor Richard, and one was Mark Twain. And Mark Twain loudly complained in print about how much he hated Benjamin Franklin because the Franklin that he was introduced to was the Franklin of this early to bed, early to rise stuff. And the young Mark Twain didn't like the idea of that at all. 
Benjamin Franklin did a great many noble things for this country. It is not the idea of this memoir to ignore that or to cover it up. No. The simple idea of it is to snub those pretentious maxims, which he worked up with a great show of originality, of truisms that had become wearisome platitudes as early as the dispersion from Babel. But Franklin was pitching it to a different audience. And so, and Mark Twain, Mark Twain sort of understood that there was more to Franklin. You know, there's a wonderful portrait print engraving of, of Franklin that was made in France in 1777, where he's wearing his famous bifocals and his fur cap, which had become his trademarks in, in Paris and made him instantly recognizable to everybody in Paris. In the picture, uh, the bifocals are, are a little bit crooked on his nose, so one eye is looking through one part of one lens and the other eye is looking through the other part of the other lens. So his eyes are a little bit distorted. And that print has become a symbol, not just for me, but for a lot of people trying to figure out what Franklin was up to. With this bifocal vision, you see him and he sees you in two very different ways at the same time. And so, yes, he was this great and powerful man who was making, really making the world a better place. I mean, he was winning the American Revolution for us. But he's also somebody that was very approachable, a solid citizen with a well-run life, a very pleasant, almost smug kind of guy. His manipulation of his own image toward the end of his life, when he was our ambassador in France, and then later as the, a framer of the Constitution, was very, very skillful. I mean, there's nobody in that age who was as good at the sort of PR aspect of, of being a public person, except possibly George Washington, who did it in a totally different way. So I guess that's why it's very dangerous to say, this is what Franklin was trying to do, or this is how he wanted us to see him. I think you always need to put on your own bifocals when you look at Franklin. And great job by Robbie on that piece. And we'd like to thank the contributors as well, Franklin historians and impersonators Mitch Kramer and Brian Patrick Mulligan, and H.W. Brands, the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. And that last voice, and that last voice you heard was Jim Green, head librarian of the Library Company of Philadelphia, America's first successful lending library founded in 1973 by Benjamin Franklin himself. And we'll close with just a few aphorisms, uh, some of the best from Poor Richard's Almanac. Industry pays debts while despair increases them. Diligence is the mother of good luck. One today is worth two tomorrows. Women in wine, game, and deceit make the wealth small and the wants great. Having been poor is no shame, but being ashamed of it is. Virtue and a trade are a child's best portion. Love your neighbor, but don't pull down your hedge. Necessity never made a good bargain. Words may show a man's wit, actions his meaning. All things are easy to industry. All things are difficult to sloth. Many have quarreled about religion that never practiced it. The way to be safe is never to be secure. A child and a fool imagine 20 shillings and 20 years can never be spent. 
The wise man draws more advantage from his enemies than the fool from his friends. And by the way, I love that one that has to get mentioned again that one of the contributors mentioned earlier. A countryman between two lawyers is like a fish between two cats. Poor Richard's almanac. In a way, it's Benjamin Franklin's story told through a window, perhaps his masterwork, his greatest conceit, and perhaps the greatest reflection of his personality and the personality of his home country, his new country, and the new nation he helped birth. Poor Richard Almanac's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll produce them up and put them on the airwaves. Some of our very best pieces have come from you. The American people have, well, you all have great stories to tell and beautiful voices from all over this great country. It's been multiple decades since a nine-year-old kid shared his Coca-Cola with Pittsburgh Steelers star Mean Joe Green in one of the most famous commercials in American history. Most of us have seen that commercial many times, but the story behind the ad is just as great. Here's Greg Hengler. The man known as Mean Joe Green was one of the most feared defenders in NFL history. In 13 seasons as defensive tackle with the Pittsburgh Steelers, the 6'4", 275-pound Joe Green was a 10-time Pro Bowler and a 2-time Defensive Player of the Year. He became an NFL icon and a first ballot Hall of Famer. And then there's that name. Here's teammates Franco Harris and Andy Russell. Is there a better name than Mean Joe Green? I mean, that name just flows. And I ask kids about that, and I say, Mean? And they say, Joe Green. He asked me one time, he said, Andy, why do they call me Mean? And I said, because you're mean. (laughs) Here's Steelers chairman Dan Rooney. We're playing in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has the ball. And if they can make a first time, the game's over. They made it. They made the first time. And he went up, took the football, and threw it in the stands. And I said to my father, this guy's special. If he's that intense, if he's going to do something like that, we got a guy that we want. Some people asked that question, what does Joe really mean? Yeah, that was the perfect name for him. He hated to lose. That was part of his demeanor. He's here to win. He's here to beat that guy across from him. And he's not going to be nice about it. 
But inside the man who was the centerpiece of the steel curtain defense that led the Pittsburgh Steelers to four Super Bowl championships in six years was something unseen by the public eye. Here's Joe Green giving us a peek. When I was a senior in high school, my class voted me to be class president. And I declined. I think about that a lot. And it was basically because I was shy and didn't want to have to talk in front of the class or the student body. (laughs) But in 1979, Green's rugged public persona in life changed dramatically after being selected for a television commercial by Madison Avenue creative wizard Penny Hockey. We were asked to do an exploratory, that is to take the Coca-Cola brand and see where else it could go in its communications. The guys were sitting there saying, okay, well, who could we get? Well, we could get Lynn Swan, Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Mean Joe Green. And I said, wait, there's a guy called Mean Joe Green? Is he mean? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, that's perfect. We want the most intimidating human being we can find. And boy, did we get it. We wrote about 10 different storylines, and the very first one that we came up with was, let's take kind of a pathetic little kid who's just awestruck over some kind of superstar football hero. Uh, The kid has nothing to offer except he has the Coca-Cola. He gives the superstar the Coca-Cola, the superstar drinks it, shazam, he's a changed person. In the commercial, Mean Joe would have a memorable encounter with a trembling nine-year-old named Tommy Okan. My mom and my dad were both in television. As to our future weather, well, we expect the rain to... My mom was on-air talent. My dad was a director and a producer. I had started doing commercials probably when I was around five or so. So by the time we did the co-commercial, I had probably done about 30 or 40 commercials up to that point. Let's go. Keep your hands up. I think you fumbled. <laughs> and the first day when we shot the commercial, there was a lot of downtime because they were doing a lot of work to the set. And uh, because of that, there wasn't a lot to do. So, of course, I had brought a football and went over to Joe and asked if he'd throw a football around. And he said, sure. He developed a sweet little relationship with Tommy and made Tommy much more comfortable. Okay. Now, giving the line, Joe. They were trying to get him to drink the whole Coke. And they had him maybe do that a couple of times and just said they were gonna, the guy was going to blow up after a while. He went through an awful lot of soda. And you know the, the legend, of course, that he drank 18 16-ounce bottles, equivalent to two and a quarter gallons. <laughs> Needless to say, when I started to shoot, the first thing out of my mouth was a big burp. Talk about absolutely perfect timing. Super Bowl programs! Super Bowl souvenirs! Super Bowl pennants! The commercial ran on the Super Bowl, and then they won. And the rest is history. What could be better? Mr. Green? Mr. Green? Yeah. Want my Coke? 
It's okay. You can have it. Okay. Joe Green was probably the first black male that was cast in an, for a national brand. It was the fact that he was black and the little boy was white. It was a shock at that time, and people experienced it and really resonated to it. I don't know where that jersey went. I don't know if Joe took it back or who got it. I do know that that Christmas I got a package, and uh, it was a signed... Mean Joe Green jersey that I uh, still have to this day. But Tommy was not the only child whose life would be positively influenced by Joe Green. Here's Joe's wife, Agnes. I think uh, it changed our lives a lot. It changed Joe's personality a lot. Because so many kids were looking up to him, he decided he really wanted to be a role model for the kids. appeared with the Muppets and probably Elmo and was on children's TV shows. Well, you know, I used to be afraid of my own shadow. And then everybody told me that was silly. What are you afraid of? Well, lots of things. Like the whole offensive line of the Rams jumping on me. Yeah? We'd be walking around and little old ladies that I know didn't know anything about football would come up to Joe and talk to him. Listen, you're not a mean guy. He's just a big old teddy bear. Doing the Coca-Cola spot did change the image. I enjoyed it. I liked it. It made me uh, more approachable. To this day, I'm still rather amazed. I mean, it's the commercial that will not die. Although he was known to the world as Mean Joe, he is known to his grandkids as Papa Joe. When we went to uh, North Texas and you saw me interacting with the people and you were surprised. A little bit. Why? <laughs> um, I guess just because we know you as grandpa and then all these people are trying to talk to you and coming yeah. up to you. So okay. it's a little new. Yeah, these two, they had the same reaction. You didn't know. Like, whoa. The father of three and grandfather of seven credits the Coke ad with keeping him in the spotlight since his retirement in 1981. My public life, my football life, has been kept alive by the commercial. A few people might know me as Mean Joe, but a lot of them know me as the Coca-Cola guy. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg. The commercial that won't die. And it's so interesting that mean Joe Green became, for so many young people, sweet Joe Green, always to his kids and grandkids, Papa Joe. And what a terrific story about life. And in the end, the civilizing effect of kids on adults. 
Mean Joe Green's story, the Coca-Cola commercial story that the world fell in love with, here on Our American Stories. And to get all of our work, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories each week. Again, Mean Joe Green's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We wanted to bring you the story of a guy you know, but don't know as well as you're about to get to know him. And his name is Tony Dungy. And if you're a football fan, and even if you're not, you know that he was the first African-American head coach to win a Super Bowl when his Colts defeated the Chicago Bears in 2007 in the Super Bowl. By the way, those were two African-American coaches and also two good Christian men. And Lovey Smith was the other coach. And... Well, he gave a Hall of Fame speech because he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Tony Dungy, in 2016. And we love to bring you talks and speeches that reveal the character and nature of folks. We did it with John Glenn uh, when, he was, when he was buried. We went back into the archives to some of the speeches he had given at the Smithsonian to bring his voice to life so you could hear from him. And you're about to hear Coach Tony Dungy talking about his life in this speech. And it starts... By coach remembering his parents. When I got the news, my first thoughts were of all the people God placed in my path to help make this possible. It started in Jackson, Michigan, and I couldn't have had a better upbringing. I'm just sorry that my parents, Wilbur and Cleo Mae Dungy, aren't alive to see this because they would be so proud. My dad always preached to us to set our goals high and to not complain about negative circumstances. Just look for a way to make things better. My mom taught us that as a Christian, your character, your integrity, and how you honored God were so much more important than your job title. One of her favorite Bible verses was Matthew 16, 26. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I know that she's happy to know that her son never forgot that verse. Wilbur and Clee May. Wilbur and Clee May, the parents. First thing Tony Dungy thanks. And then he thanked his coaches. Had a lot of excellent coaches growing up in all sports, but I really have to thank my high school football coach, Dave Driscoll. I came to him as a 14-year-old who felt like I knew it all. And Coach Driscoll helped me become a good player, but more than that, he helped me become a leader. He taught me how to think the game. Woody Woodenhofer and Tom Moore were the coaches who recruited me to the University of Minnesota, and I thank them for impacting my life. Woody would end up coaching me with the Steelers. 
and Tom Moore. You heard Marvin talk about Tom. Well, Tom rode with me on the very first plane ride I ever took, my recruiting trip to Minnesota when I was scared to get on the plane. He was my quarterback coach as a freshman, and then 33 years later, he was our offensive coordinator in Super Bowl 41 with the Colts, and he's still coaching now, and I owe him a lot. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Woody. And a big thank you to our head coach of the Gophers, Cal Stoll, who told us as freshmen that he expected us to be uncommon, not just average. And that thought has stuck with me throughout my life. And it's a great thought to be uncommon and not average. After some great formative years, Tony Dungy's career, his life, hit a speed bump. Well, after four years of playing quarterback at Minnesota, I expected to continue doing that in the NFL, but it didn't happen. In 1977, even though the draft was 12 rounds long then, I didn't get picked, and I was devastated. But it just is one example of God's plans being better than our plans. Woody and Tom were now in Pittsburgh coaching, and they convinced Chuck Knoll to give a guy who'd never played any position but quarterback a shot at another position. I have to say that $2,000 signing bonus I got didn't last long, but I ended up gaining a lot more than money. Chuck Knoll would play a huge, huge role in my life and teach me so much about the game of football. But in our first meeting, he said that even though we were now professionals, and we're being paid to play the game, we shouldn't make it our life. There was more to life than just football, and he wanted to help us find our life's work. Coach Noel, Art Rooney Sr., and Dan Rooney lived that out every day in the way they led the Steeler organization. Dungy talks about how one man in particular stood out in the Steelers organization. There were so many great players on that team. A lot of them up here right now as I speak today, and they all had an impact on me, but none of them more so than Donnie Schell. Donnie took me under his wing, and I learned so much from him, not just about playing safety, but about being a Christian athlete, a husband and father, and a teammate. Thank you, Donnie. And then Dungey remembers many setbacks and opportunities on and off the field. After getting a Super Bowl ring my second year, I experienced another disappointment, getting traded. But again, the Lord was using disappointment to help me grow. With the San Francisco 49ers, I got to play for Bill Walsh and see another system. And Eddie DeBarlo was instilling the same principles in his team that I'd seen with the Steelers, doing everything in a first-class and family way. Well, my playing career only lasted one more year, and suddenly, at 25 years old, I was looking for a real job. That's when Coach Noel called me and gave me that chance to start my life's work. Coming back to Pittsburgh was the beginning of my coaching journey, but there was another blessing in store for me, meeting my beautiful wife, Lauren, the love of my life, my biggest supporter, and my greatest blessing. And when we come back, it's almost a biography listening to this speech, and that's why we love to play him. In his words, and you hear him referring to his, his Lord 
And when we do and when we can, we focus on people's faith. And when it's not there, that's fine too. But we don't leave it out when it is there. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Tony Dungy's Hall of Fame speech. A day in the life, a glimpse into the man who was the first African-American to ever win a Super Bowl. More on Tony Dungy from Tony Dungy. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The first wave of children came soon after we got married. Tierra, Jamie, and Eric's lives were typical of assistant coaches' kids. Moving every few years, leaving friends, making new friends, and they did it without complaining. Now our second wave of kids, Jordan, Jade, Justin, Jason, Jalen, Jaden, and Jayla, well, they had a little more stability. Jordan and Jade were able to experience some of the perks of being the head coach's kids. But they also had their disappointments, like when Dad couldn't come to a birthday party or school performance. But all ten of them know I love them, and I hope they know how much I appreciate their sacrifices. And that's Tony Dungy talking about his family. He had spoken about his bride before we uh, left you off in the last segment. And now we continue with this great speech by Tony Dungy. He was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. And periodically, we love to take you back to old speeches, old essays, old movies, because if you didn't bump into it, it's not old. And this reveals so much of Tony Dungy's character in this Hall of Fame speech. Here, he recalls some of the steps along the path to becoming a head coach. Well, getting to that head coaching job was a long journey from Pittsburgh to Kansas City to Minnesota. 15 great years and a lot of wonderful people. But I have to thank two people in particular. During my four years with the Vikings, Tom Lamphere, our chaplain, met with me weekly going through the book of Nehemiah to give me a picture of biblical leadership that I would use to guide my teams. Thank you, Tom. And Denny Green, Denny went out of his way to teach me the responsibilities of being a head coach. Taught me about things on and off the field. He did it because he wanted to see me become a head coach. And he wanted me to be prepared and be ready when that opportunity came. And I love him for that. But as much as I appreciate that, The thing I'm most grateful to Denny for is that he made sure his assistant coaches had quality time with our families. He let my boys come to camp and be around their dad. He made sure we were able to be husbands and fathers as well as coaches. And just as Coach Noel had done, 
Denny showed me that you could win doing it that way. I thanked him many, many, many times over the years, but I really wish I could thank him one more time tonight for everything he did to help me take that final step. And who your mentors are matters, folks. And if you're lucky enough to stumble upon the right ones, they can change your whole life, your whole worldview. Tony Junji was lucky to stumble into Denny Green, but he also picked that chaplain. So some by design, some by chance. But they shaped this man deeply. Here's Dunji finally talking about getting the gig he'd always dreamed of. And that step came in 1996 when I got the job I thought I'd never get, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I thank Rich McKay, who headed up the search, and Brian Joel and Ed Glazer for their confidence in me. And I'm especially grateful to Malcolm Glazer, who was so supportive and so loving and gave me so much practical advice. Our family enjoyed a phenomenal six years in Tampa. 1997 was probably my favorite year in coaching. We made the playoffs for the first time in 15 years, and the Bucks fans went crazy over their team. And those fans still remain special to me to this day. Dungy remembers another big setback, another big opportunity. Losing my job in 2002 after a playoff loss was another painful disappointment. But again, God used it to lead me to a blessing. That's when Jim Irsay called and gave me the opportunity to join him and Bill Polin in Indianapolis. Like Rich McKay, Bill had an exceptional eye for talent, and he built a tremendous football team. We had a lot of fun over the next seven years, highlighted by that Super Bowl 41 victory. But I'll tell you, the most satisfying part was doing what Jim talked about in that first phone conversation, connecting with our community and making the Colts an integral part of the Indianapolis landscape. I'd like to thank you big time, Jim and Bill, and the Colts fans. You made us feel like native Hoosiers, and our family loves you. And Dungy then went on to thank many other people, the assistant coaches, the staff, the players, and one player in particular, Peyton Manning. But the biggest reason I'm here tonight is the people I was able to work with during my 13 years as a head coach. I had fantastic assistant coaches in Tampa and Indianapolis, and some awesome staff people. I wish I had time to recognize them individually because they were the big reason why we were successful. And you don't win in the NFL without players, and was I ever blessed with players. Again, I'm not going to recognize them all individually, but so many of them are here tonight, and I'm going to ask them to stand while I talk about them. There's a bunch up here on this podium I'd like to stand, guys who played for me. There's some in my section. They're in Marvin's section. If you played for me, I'd love for you to stand up so I could recognize you. As you see, several of them are in the Hall of Fame already. Others are certainly going to follow them. And there's no doubt... These guys are responsible for me being up here today. I thank you guys. I love you, every one of you. 
Thank you. And some guys pretend to not take the credit, and other guys don't want the credit. And you can tell, if you were watching that, that Dun Dungee, well, he didn't like taking credit for any of this stuff. Last but not least, Dungee had to turn his attention to the trailblazers, the African-American men in this sport who paved the way for him to be, again, the very first African-American to coach an NFL Super Bowl winner. And finally, I'd like to say a special thank you to 10 men. Willie Brown, Buck Buchanan, Ernell Durden, Bob Ledbetter, Elijah Pitts, Jimmy Ray, Johnny Rowland, Al Tabor, Lionel Taylor, and Alan Webb. Now those names might not be familiar to you, but those were the African-American assistant coaches in the NFL in 1977, my first year in the league. It was a small group of men, just 10 of them, if you can believe that, 10 African-American assistant coaches in the entire NFL. Many of them never got the chance to move up the coaching ladder like I did, but they were so important to the progress of this league. Those men were like my dad. They didn't complain about the lack of opportunities. They found ways to make the situation better. They were role models and mentors for me and my generation of young African-American players like Ray Rhodes, Terry Rubisky, and Herm Edwards, we were in the 80s trying to decide whether we could make coaching a career or not. Without those 10 coaches laying the groundwork, the league would not have the 200-plus minority assistant coaches it has today. And we would not have had Lovey Smith and Tony Dungy coaching against each other in Super Bowl 41. So tonight, as I join Fritz Pollard as the second African-American coach in the Hall of Fame, I feel like I'm representing those 10 men and all the African-American coaches who came before me and paved the way. And I thank them very, very much. And there you have it, Tony Dungy's speech. We're going to play this last clip now. Here is how he closed things out in The Lord has truly led me on a wonderful journey through 31 years in the NFL, through some temporary disappointments to some incredible joys. I cherish every single relationship that I was able to make over those 31 years, and I'll always be grateful to the National Football League for giving me my life's work. Thank you, and God bless. Don't complain. Make the situation better. His mom and dad told that to him. These 10 great African-American assistant coaches, and again, there were only 10 when he came into the league. There are now 200-plus America still trying and working hard to overcome its original sin, and working hard it is. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, arts, sports, history, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free and terrific newsletter. You give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our five best stories each week, direct to your inbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we love talking to authors, and today we have a longtime journalist, Amy Sutherland. She's done all kinds of writing. She's worked in newspaper industry, and in the early 2000s, she started writing books and working on magazine pieces. The book she'll be talking about today is entitled, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. Here's Amy. People are always trying to change each other's behavior. The only thing I started to do differently was I started trying to change my husband's behavior by changing my behavior first. I started using my own behavior as communication. And that's the biggest lesson, I think, maybe, or one of the biggest lessons I got from the world of animal training is that your how you behave is communication. Amy Sutherland has found a unique way to interact with others. Many of us are trying to change those around us, which will leave us frustrated. What would happen if we just focused on changing our own behavior? Like in the 90s, late 90s, my husband and I adopted, uh, brought home a dog, our first dog as adults, a little puppy, an Australian shepherd we named Dixie Lou. And uh, she was a herding dog, and she was a ball of fire. So my husband and I took her to a trainer, and we had our sights set on teaching Dixie how to run agility courses. But to do that, we had to first take her to basically like a puppy obedience class. It was just my good luck that this trainer trained with all positive reinforcement, what uh, is called often clicker training. But uh, the, the thrust of clicker training is that training is fun and it's done with positive reinforcement, that there's no punishment as in there's the no uh, leaking, uh, jerking the leash, you know, barking orders at the dog. It's a much more civil and humane and intellectually challenging experience. That's basically how I first learned about animal training and not only how interesting it was as something to learn for myself as a human, but that it was a really interesting intellectual intellectual challenge to have that amount of self-control to learn how to work with another species and the payoff was humongous and that was getting to communicate with another species uh, in this case my gorgeous little dog Dixie Lou so I was super hooked on animal training and I had a friend who was an editor of a magazine and she knew this. She knew that I loved animal training and loved animals. And uh, she also knew that uh, I had spent a lot of time in France and that I had workable French. And so she gave me this great assignment to go to the set of 102 Dalmatians and do a story on the production there. The, The thing with a movie set is it sounds like like a super sexy story assignment. But the fact is, what happens on movie sets is that you stand around a lot. So there was a lot of time to kill. Uh, But it was just my good luck that, given it was 102 Dalmatians, that there were all these dogs on the set. 
and with her trainers. But anyhow, it turned out they had all gone to the school I had never heard of, and it was Moor Park Community College's Exotic Animal Training Management Program, which has the appropriate acronym of EDEM. Um, and this was really the Harvard University, is the Harvard University for animal trainers in this country, and it has a reputation internationally, too. Um, so if you want to get somewhere in this field, you ideally want to go to this school. So this, like, st actually, it struck me as almost something made up. But, uh, you know, once you get into the world of animals, it seems like anything's possible. So uh, a few years later, when I was looking for a book idea um, for my second book, uh, I remembered this school and um, thought that that had the potential for a book. And uh, I was completely right. It had more than enough material for a book. And I spent about a year and a half following these students. I was following them as they learned how to work with everything from emus to wolves to boa constrictors to tigers to uh, they had a trained hyena. They had loads and loads of parrots. And they used the same progressive training methods using positive reinforcement to work with these animals and to get them to do all kinds of amazing behaviors. But it also became a, more of a life-changing experience for me than I expected because to learn how to work with these animals, they had to learn sort of almost a philosophy. They had to learn a different way of thinking and um, that way of thinking really started to get under my skin. I started to realize that the way that they were working with these animals and the ideas they were using and techniques that they were using, that if they could work with these exotic animals, that it might make sense to start using some of these ideas to improve my own personal relationships and the, the relationship I thought I would try some of these ideas with was with my marriage, <laughs> with my husband, with the homo sapien known as Scott Sutherland. One of the first times I did this, which I've, I've, I ended up writing about for the New York Times, was uh, my husband is a perpetual key loser. And this is a behavior that sort of charged in our house, meaning he would be looking for his keys, he'd be stomping around, and it was really hard for me to ignore the stomping. And so I would somehow always get involved with him looking for his keys. And sometimes I would help him actually look, or sometimes I'd make suggestions of how he could avoid this in the future. That never went over very well. But it would just end up turning into this drama. One of the lessons they teach the students when they work with the uh, exotic animals is that you should basically ignore behavior that you don't want. Meaning, when you pay attention to behavior you don't want, you are in some way potentially reinforcing that behavior. Say, for example, a dolphin trainer asks a dolphin to do a, you know, some kind of cue, like flip or whatever, but the dolphin doesn't do it, or the dolphin instead decides to spit water on that trainer, the trainer will studiously ignore that behavior. Because if they respond in any way, that dolphin might think that that was pretty much fun.
on and squirt water on them again. So I used that same sort of thinking. The next time my husband lost his keys, I tried what a dolphin trainer would do. And when I heard the stomping and the harumping, I just ignored him and I did not get involved. And the next thing I knew, my husband had found his keys and, you know, no drama. And I had actually felt kind of like I had wasted years and years of my life helping him find the keys in the past. So I ended up writing about this sort of new approach to my marriage with the help of animal training for the New York Times for their modern love section. I got an overwhelming response that I didn't expect. Within a week, I was signed up to go on to the Today Show. I had a movie deal that was in the works, and I had a book deal that was in the works. So it turns out that people <laughs> really need help with their some of their marriages and that I had found something that might do the trick for a lot of people. That is how I ended up writing my third book, which is what is called What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. It's sort of the story about how I changed my thinking about how to deal with the human relationships in my life based on what I had learned from the school for exotic animal trainers. And when we come back, we continue with Amy Sutherland, her book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. More importantly, her story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to author Amy Sutherland, the writer of the book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. And she's been telling us the story about her visits to the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program in Moore Park, California. She wrote a column about her experiences there and how she began to use the technique on her husband. By the way, I love that she called him Homo sapien, Scott Sutherland, and Homo sapien Lee Habib need similar training. I don't just lose keys. I lose everything. Let's return to her story. After I wrote that column, some pe- I got actually mostly positive responses to that. But, you know, some people were sort of bothered by it, and they it didn't surprise me. Uh, one of the things is they said is that, you know, why can't you just tell your husband um, what you want him to do? You know, like, as if I hadn't tried that for most of my marriage. I mean, that's what we're all doing all the time, right? We are, you know, uh, we're all trying to change each other's behaviors, but we tend to do it verbally. And we tend to do it often negatively, like with uh, criticizing or nagging or going on and on and about how we feel about something. It becomes very clear when you work with animals because you don't have that verbal component. All you have is your behavior. So you don't get to go back to an animal and say, oh geez, what I really meant was bloody bloody blah. Or, you know, hey emu, I really don't like it when you, you know, try to whack me with your head. That I saw the power of that with all these amazing things these trainers trained. So what a lot of people were missing is that 
yeah, I was trying to change my husband's behavior, but I changed myself first. And the, the, the sort of end bonus for that, which I didn't think about at the time, turned out to be that in doing this, it made me a calmer person. It made me um, a more self, I had more self-control. I got better at not taking things personally. It had this sort of transformative effect on my own personality. And since then, I would say that uh, it had the effect on my marriage of, one, I quit nagging because one of the rules of animal behavior is that if you're using a technique and it's not working, it's not having any success, then you should stop doing that. I mean, that seems so obvious, but how many of us just keep repeating ourselves and nagging? I mean, I certainly did. So I stopped doing that, uh, and that was a relief to my husband, I'm sure. It certainly actually was a relief to me, I found, too, to not hear myself saying the same old thing again. What is the benefit of reward versus punishment? But the truth is, what most people don't know, is that all these ideas that inform modern animal training came from the world of human psychology. They came from the world of B.F. Skinner and um, behavior science. What he found is a living organism learns the most effectively when they are rewarded as opposed to being punished. This was, uh, you know, he studied this, he trained pigeons, but he basically was, you know, rooted in a scholarly, academic, psychological, human psychological world. To really be an effective trainer, you have to look in the mirror and sort of understand what it is that you're doing uh, that might be reinforcing uh, other people's behaviors. You know, how could, it, how could it start with you? You know, there's, there's times it's not, but you have to always think about that and think about, you know, what you could be doing differently. The other thing that I had, uh, I thought a lot about is, um, uh, is in, in the training world, they have a saying that's called know your species. And uh, what that means is that you understand the species of animal that you are working with, meaning is it does it does it like to sleep at night? Does it like to sleep during the day? Does it uh, does it like cold weather? Does it like hot weather? I thought about that with the people in my life. Like what were the behaviors about them? that were dialed in, that were just like too much a part of their wiring, ones that I really am, was, were never going to change or had to think about what was reasonable to expect. Like um, my husband, you know, I had not really expected to try to get my husband to quit losing his keys. That was, you know, he, he tends to be a kind of thinky person and he's often sort of, you know, not, you know, thinking of other things while he's doing, you know, the normal things like putting his keys down somewhere so he's not keeping track of them. Um, I, instead of putting my sights on that behavior, I set my sights on changing what happened when we looked for his keys. Our lives would be much less frustrating if we didn't take things so personally. This does not mean we don't have feelings, but instead we see outside of ourselves and practice empathy. 
because people had some of these behaviors really wired in, and also, in addition to that, you might take how somebody is responding to you personally when in fact it's got to do with something other than you. So I learned to take things less personally. So, for example, uh, in the train, in the animal training world, uh, trainers, one of the big rules is that you do not take anything personally. You do not say they really discourage the students from talking about the animals liking them or not liking them. Because um, that's just too uh, anthropomorphic of a view. That is when we attribute human characteristics to non-human entities. They wanted them to always have a neutral sort of idea of what the animal was doing and not make it some uh, highly charged or emotional reason for why an animal was doing something. Because when you think that way, you might have trouble seeing why an animal is doing something. So I started thinking about that with people and thinking about when was the when were the times that I was taking what somebody did personally when in fact it had nothing to do with me. How has Amy's life changed in light of all this? I mean, I think one of the strongest things I learned is when is to know when to not respond. I've gotten so much better at that and to just you know, when I, it's the idea that, you know, that one of the things the trainers say is you get what you reinforce, right? That's like a universal rule. And uh, I think that's one of the most brilliant, boiled down uh, sort of approaches to life I've ever heard. So if you get what you reinforce, then by, you know, you start to think about, you get much better about not reinforcing and knowing when to either not say anything to leave the room, to disengage somehow. But she doesn't just practice these ideas on others. I mean, the thing is, is that I use a lot of this stuff on myself to understand like when I can think through something and when I can't, when I should be doing online checking and when I shouldn't be. Because you gotta be real with yourself about when you're clear in the head and what you can expect out of yourself. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the word training because it feels or sounds manipulative. But maybe it's not what we think. That brings up sort of like an issue that a lot of people have with training. A lot of people have a negative connection to that word. Oddly, because we have weight training and people train for sports and... There's a lot of positive ways it's used with people, but a lot of people associate the word training with dog training. And dog training traditionally, unfortunately, was very negative-based with a lot of punishment. That has changed, thank God. But I think that when you use that word, people often get their hackles up. Fact is, for me, is I think of the word as training, I equate it with teaching. I also equate it with communication. I think the world is slightly changing about that. I think there's a a movement in this country. I actually spoke at a conference this summer, and it was a conference called Convergence. And the convergence was that half the room was animal trainers and half the room were people who are already using these ideas with people. So... Uh, there's a form of clicker training that's called tag teaching and it's basically being it's it's using the clicker 
with humans um, and it's use they're using it the same kind of like bare bones technology to teach uh, people how to work on assembly lines to help people improve their golf swings to help surgeons learn how to tie uh, surgical residents, how to tie uh, surgical knots properly. They find that the same system of using a, a sound to mark when somebody gets something right works with humans just as it does with animals. So I think someday I won't seem like such a weirdo. <laughs> it's my hope. <laughs> when you begin seeing outside yourself, you start to see animals and people as individuals. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Amy Sutherland. And again, her book, What Shamu, taught me about love, life, and marriage. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear and see all that we do. And send us your stories, your relationship stories, your lost stories, your love stories, any old story. Send them into ouramericannetwork.org. We'll do our best to turn them around and put them up on the airwaves for you, for all of you. Again, Amy Sutherland, her story, her book, here on Our American Stories.